the subway of Manhattan's Lower East Side have a hollow feeling about them after midnight, an atmosphere of gray foreboding, of indefinable menace. Every noise reverberates against the cold concrete walls and down the dark labyrinthine tunnels, lending a sinister aspect to even the most innocent of sounds. Laughter is heard as snide jeering. A wino's wheezing sigh becomes the last gasp of humanity itself, and a bit of blues played on a young girl's mouth harp, the cry of a world in pain. My name is Conrad, and welcome to the 11th episode of Stranger by the Dozen, a weekly podcast where we recap the adventures of Dr. Stephen Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, 12 issues at a time. This week, Dr. Strange and the Defenders will fight the Wrecking Crew, be joined by the Thing, Ben Grimm, in the case of the Magical Harmonica, learn more about the mysterious backstories of both the Valkyrie and Dr. Strange's main squeeze, Clea, and deal way more with Nighthawk's love life than I'm really interested in. <laughs> also, a certain hot-headed young up-and-comer known as the Dread Dormammu makes his return. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature this week on Stranger by the Dozen. You can follow the show on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and on any fine podcast app. Give the show a five-star review, and I'll read it on the air. If you want to read along with the podcast, the second half of the issues covered this episode are available on Marvel Unlimited, and all of them can be found in either Essential Doctor Strange Volume 3 or Marvel Masterworks Doctor Strange Volume 5. And the Defenders issues can be found in Essential Defenders Volume 2 or Marvel Masterworks Defender Volume 3. Just a quick recap, the supervillain team, The Wrecking Crew, has been destroying buildings owned by Kyle Richmond, the civilian identity of the Nighthawk, former member of the Squadron Sinister, and now a Defender. Nighthawk and Doctor Strange went to investigate the last of these buildings, only to find it being guarded by Luke Cage, hero for hire. After your standard pre-team-up superhero fight, the building collapsed and the trio came face-to-face -face with the Wrecking Crew itself. Now let's get to the action with Defenders 18 from December 1974. Rampage! Len Wein writer, Sal Buscema and Dan Green illustrators, Glynis Wine colorist, Dave Hunt letterer, Roy Thomas editor. Alright, Defenders vs. Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew is a fun, street-level supervillain group. This is their first outing as a full team. There are currently four members. There's Pile Driver, who's super strong and good at punching. Uh, Bulldozer, who's also super strong, but mostly good at running and does kind of a juggernaut thing where he smashes into you. Thunderball, who throws a big wrecking ball around. And The Wrecker, who has a magic crowbar enchanted by the Asgardian Norn Queen. The Wrecker has previously appeared in Marvel Comics. He's fought Thor a couple times in crazy magic hammer versus magic crowbar fights. We learned this issue that when Wrecker and his buddies escape from prison, they used the crowbar to all get magical powers. Nice. <laughs> Before the fight, though, let's check in on Valkyrie, now walking around the hometown of her human body, Barbara Norris, in Cobbler's Roost, Vermont. She reflects on her backstory, and a mysterious guy with a fedora and everything starts following her. We can see his thought bubbles. After all these months, it can't be, not her. I'd better phone the boss, and fast. So it's go time. The fight between the Defenders and the Wrecking Crew is not super great, in my opinion, because only Luke Cage can really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of the crew members. So it's a lot of him fighting individuals on the team, then Doctor Strange or Nighthawk popping in to help out a bit. Like, first the Doc traps everyone at the building site with a magic force field and he blasts some guys. Or Nighthawk makes expert use of a crane to bash some crew members. Eventually, though, Doctor Strange starts to go weak as the force field is punched to death from the outside by the Hulk, who has apparently learned an important lesson about friendship in the pages of Marvel Team-Up 27. Hulk is trying to break the barrier to help his buddies, but it's hurting Doctor Strange instead. Eventually, 
The dog passes out and the shield lowers, allowing the Hulk to beat up all the wrecking crew at once. They make to flee, but first it looks like Thunderball has found something he's been looking for in the rubble of the building. Some kind of case. But it's empty! Oh crud! <laughs> what was in there? We'll find out next issue. He could slay the world. Defenders 19 from January 1975. Doom Ball! Chris Claremont script, Len Wein plot, Sal Buscema and Klaus Johnson artists, Bill Mantlo coloring, Artie Semek lettering. Damn, Artie Semek will die in the next month, so this is bittersweet. Also, Chris Claremont of X-Men fame is just sitting in for this issue. Anyhow, we find out that the item missing from the case was a Gamma Bomb! Thunderball apparently made the Gamma Bomb before he was a criminal. Back then, he was a brilliant physicist known as the Black Bruce Banner because he was one, black, two, brilliant, three, continuing Banner's research in the field of gamma radiation, including building a new gamma radiation bomb with ten times the power of the weapon that turned Banner into the Hulk and small enough to fit in your hand. He started working on it at Caltech, but then got hired by Richmond Enterprises, where he finished the weapon. So now we learn a valuable lesson about intellectual property, as when the Gamma Bomb was completed, Pennyworth, uh, Nighthawk's business manager, took control of the nuke because it had been built with company equipment. Thunderball then broke into Richmond Enterprises and stole the bomb back, but was caught by security. On the run out, he dropped the bomb into a vat of molten steel used to build Richmond's skyscrapers. It was a multi-purpose building with big steel vats and nuclear test facilities in the same place, I guess. The wrecking crew has been tearing down buildings used with that steel to finally get the bomb back. But now they've lost it again! The Wrecking Crew wallop the Defenders unconscious and then make their escape. When the team comes to, it's time for the hunt for the Wrecking Crew. On their hunt, they meet three different groups of people. First, a pair of cops who Doctor Strange magically freezes in place because the team doesn't want to explain themselves. Then, a homeless guy for whom Doctor Strange summons a six-course dinner from the Plaza Hotel complete with table and candelabras, and some random kid who says the Wrecking Crew are at the Harlem Boys Club, apparently using a tracker to find the bomb. As the defenders run to the club, we totally see that the kid is actually holding the bomb in his baseball glove. Oh man! The defenders arrive at the Harlem Boys Club and have a, actually a pretty awesome fight. It starts with the Hulk walking in the front door of the club and then being blasted back out of it. Then later, there's a pretty awesome sequence where the Hulk palms Thunderball's wrecking ball and destroys it by crushing it with one hand as Thunderball looks on in horror. Eventually, the Defenders triumph, Doctor Strange banishing the magic crowbar to another plane of existence. It'll come back in 1976 to help fight the Fantastic Four, just FYI. Uh, so that's all wrapped up, right? No, the Gamma Bomb has been activated. What do we do? The obvious choice is to uh, de-hulk Bruce Banner and have him disarm the bomb on a street corner with tools Doctor Strange creates out of thin air, barefoot in his purple Hulk pants. He succeeds! Woo! Victory! But it's bittersweet because by allowing the building to be destroyed, Luke Cage probably won't get paid. Bummer, dude. Luke Cage also walks off into the sunset telling the Defenders to not call him if the world needs saving. He won't be that lucky. Uh, so let me just say before we finish here that over these last two episodes are some of the best sound effects I've ever seen. Examples. Thrama, where a wrecking ball destroys a bunch of cop cars. Scrack. A crowbar opens a water main. Scrackoom. Bulldozer runs through a cop car. Splang. Luke Cage hits the wrecking ball with an eye beam like a baseball. Quaroom! Bulldozer runs through a crane. Splow! Hulk punches Bulldozer. Thrang! Wrecker misses hitting Nighthawk. Punt! Luke Cage punching Pile Driver. And that doesn't even make sense because punt should be a kick sound. I don't know. Fump! Hulk catches the wrecking ball. 
and splacked Luke Cage Judo's pile driver into a wall. <laughs> These are, they're really awesome. Anyway, Marvel 2-in-1, number 6, November 1974. Death Song of Destiny. Steve Gerber, writer. George Tuska, art. Mike Esposito, inker. Artie Simek, letterer. Petra Goldberg, colorist. Roy Thomas, editor. Gerber alert! Like Roy Thomas, Steve Englehart, or Roger Stern in the solo Doctor Strange book, Steve Gerber is one of the most important writers for The Defenders. He's a fun, sometimes trippy author. Besides his Defenders work, he's probably best known for creating Man-Thing and, of course, Howard the Duck. So this is Marvel 2-in-1, which basically means it's a superhero story starring Ben Grimm, The Thing, and a guest. This time it's Doctor Strange, with a bit of an assist from Clea and Valkyrie. Our story starts at a subway stop in the Lower East Side of Manhattan after midnight. Gerber does a really neat job of setting the scene and introducing all the people at the station, even though they're mostly throwaway characters. Besides Clea and Doctor Strange, there's a pretty young woman playing a harmonica, a homeless guy trying to sleep, two young toughs, and a rich couple from Park Slope. So the Tufts hassle the harmonica lady and they steal her instrument. She freaks out and is accidentally knocked onto the tracks of the subway as a train bears down on her. She says, I am of no import. Retrieve the harmonica, I beg you. Doctor Strange grabs it and as he does, the girl is hit by the train. Oh no! But wait, she explodes into fireworks or something. Colorful sparks that fill the platform and seep into the travelers. It's pretty weird, honestly. Uh, Strange checks out the harmonica, and it seems normal, but has the word Celestia inscribed on it. They head home. Meanwhile, in the Baxter building, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing is getting his beauty rest. Or he's trying to when he gets a phone call. Apparently, the toughs from the train platform are having a freak out, and their grandma's friends with Ben Grimm. She's like a second mother to him that Fantastic Four fans have never seen before and never will again. He heads over to Yancey Street to hear their story. Meanwhile again, Doctor Strange is working some magic on the harmonica to learn its secrets. It turns out that the woman on the train platform was a spirit of destiny and everyone on that platform will have their destiny changed. She won't say what's up with the harmonica, though. Anyhow, Doctor Strange resolves to visit everyone from the train platform to make sure they're okay. First, he heads to Brooklyn to visit the rich couple, and it turns out that the husband, Sheldon, has lost his face! Whoa! <laughs> Strange quickly fixes him, and Sheldon reveals that this might have been a manifestation of his feelings of conformity at his job. Time to quit and write his novel. It's destiny! We catch up with Ben as he storms out of the Tufts apartment, skeptical of their story. He checks on his fantastic car and finds it vandalized by his old enemies, the Yancey Street Gang. They wrote stamp out ugly people on his car. Rude. Dr. Strange arrives, and he convinces Grimm to go back to the Tufts place, only to find them under attack by a giant rat. Rat fight! The two manage to beat it after convincing Duff, one of the Tufts, to turn his life around and take some night courses or something. He agrees, and it's clobbering time. Ben and Strange decide to head back to the Sanctum to figure out what the deal is with the harmonica. But when they arrive, it turns out that Valkyrie has already taken it. What's that mean? And what happened to the homeless guy from the train station? It's time for a Thing-Valkyrie team-up in... Marvel 2-in-1, number 7, from January 1975. Name that Doom. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. Steve Gerber, writer. Sal Buscema, artist. Mike Esposito, inker. Joe Rosen, letterer. Bill Mantlo, colorist. Roy Thomas, editor. So the story starts in a very unusual manner. Dawn in New York City as Albin Denton, the homeless guy from the train platform last issue, is snatched from a Central Park bench by none other than the Galdern Valkyrie, who then teleports away with Alvin. What's up? I mean, that's what Doctor Strange and Ben Grimm want to know, too. 
Doctor Strange is using the Orb of Agamotto, now called the Crystal, but whatever, to see that Valkyrie is currently sleeping rough in Cobbler's Roof, Vermont, which is where we saw her in Defenders 18 as well. So she, could, she couldn't have gotten the Celestia Harmonica from the Sanctum or kidnapped Alep and Denton and still be there in Connecticut. What's up? <laughs> Strange decides to continue trying to find Alvin back at the Sanctum, and Ben Grimm agrees to fly up to Vermont in his flying car. They're trying to find answers, though they aren't even sure what the questions are. Or so they say, at least. So we follow Ben on his trip, and he runs into a very pre-smartphone problem as he realizes he has no idea where Cobbler's Roost Vermont actually is. He needs a map, so he flies into a random gas station, and we see that Destiny is at work, because he's suddenly clobbered by the giant mace of the Executioner! And his girlfriend, the Enchantress, is there too. We haven't seen them since Defenders 4, and it looks like she's up to her old tricks again, using the Valkyrie persona to trick people. We, we, remember, she's done that before. Anyway, she's got both Alvin Denton and the harmonica, and I guess the gas station was an illusion? She and the Executioner teleport away, and the unconscious Thing and Alvin are eventually found by Doctor Strange in astral form. He wakes them up and suggests they return to New York, but Alvin demands that Ben fly him to Cobbler's Roost, where he has a feeling his daughter is in danger. Coincidence? Destiny! On the way there, Alvin spills the beans about how he became a homeless drunk. Apparently, he used to be a lawyer until his wife died in a car accident. His daughter married a no-good nickname Jack, and the two of them fell in with a bunch of occultists and disappeared. This is sounding familiar, especially when they actually do find Valkyrie, and Alvin identifies her as his daughter, Barbara. There's some confusion here, so remember that Valkyrie is basically... Uh, spirit inhabiting the body of Barbara Norris, which is her married name, I guess, and her maiden name is Denton. Enchantress and Executioner. Enchantcutioner? Exchantress? Exchantress show up, return Valkyrie to her constant screaming insane Barbara Norris state, and is about to use the harmonica of destiny to gain ultimate power or something when Alvin grabs the harmonica and starts playing, destroying the entire Earth, except for him, Thing, Barbara, and Exechantress. <laughs> uh, so, Enchantress restores Barbara to Valkyrie's status, and it's time for a big brawl on a bunch of crazy floating rocks. Doctor Strange is going to be so pissed that he's missing this. Eventually, Ben gets the harmonica and plays it, restoring Earth to normal. And that's the third time Earth has been completely destroyed and reformed during the course of this podcast. Exechantress has been knocked out by mighty thing punches, and sadly Alvin Denton has died in the stress. Valkyrie is devastated, and Ben Grimm can only offer her a rocky shoulder to cry on. This one's a bummer. And we go to Defenders 20 from February 1975. The Woman She Was. Steve Gerber, story. Stalbusema, layouts. Vince Coletta, finished art. John Costanza, letterer. Petra Goldberg, colorist. Len Wein, editor. Roy Thomas is out. <laughs> He'll continue freelancing for Marvel for a few years before going to DC for a while. The story is that Wein was writing Defenders and Gerber was writing Daredevil. And both were unhappy in the jobs, so they swapped. Wine got to write one issue of Daredevil before he had to stop to take over the editor-in-chief job. Meanwhile, Gerber will write Defenders for a good long time. We start the story minutes after the end of the last issue, Ben Grimm and Valkyrie grieving the death of Alvin Denton as Executioner and Enchantress lie unconscious. Or so it seems. Executioner wakes up, and it's time for a forest fight. It's pretty cool with a lot of uh, tree branches being smashed into each other and stuff. It ends quickly as the Enchantress and Executioner teleport away, however. We also learn that Valkyrie has a crazy secret identity thing. When she sheaths her sword, she goes back to street clothes and the sword goes invisible. And when she draws it, she is instantly in her super suit, complete with cloak and metal bikini. 
Uh, so Val takes Alvin's body and starts to walk into town to get it taken care of. Ben is about to head home when Doctor Strange in astral form asks him to stay, at least until he and a friend can arrive. Ooh, I hope it's the Hulk! The thing takes a nap while he waits. Val walks into the sheriff's office, tailed by the fedora guy from Defenders 18. In his thought bubble, he says he's working for Van Nyborg, who will remember as the leader of the cultists that worshipped the Nameless One way back in Incredible Hulk 126 in 1968. Apparently, everyone in town knows Valkyrie as Barbara, and she makes a valiant effort to try to pretend to know everyone else. Alvin's body is taken away by The Undertaker, and everyone goes to the old Denton house. We also learn that Barbara's husband, Jack, is in town too. Uh-oh. Meanwhile, the Thing has awoken from his nap by Doctor Strange and Nighthawk. Boo! After some bellyaching from Nighthawk about how the Defenders aren't a normal super team with regular meetings and a charter and stuff, like that's not what makes them cool, they arrive at the Denton house. Inside the house, Valkyrie is confronted by a cloaked figure who calls her Sister Barbara and blasts her with magic bolts. Meanwhile, the boys find a trap door in the front yard that Nighthawk and the Thing promptly fall through and then come face to face with the mysterious dude that's been following Valkyrie around. Doctor Strange starts to investigate the Denton house and finds a portrait of a lady slightly older than Valkyrie. Maybe Barbara's mother? The inscription on the frame says it's Celestia Denton, which is the same name as on the harmonica. What does it mean? Well, for now, it means that the same figure that blasted Valkyrie now blasts Doctor Strange. And we see him and Val unconscious on a sacrificial altar as that Van Nyborg character explains how they're going to sacrifice them to those jerks, the nameless ones. We also learn that the cult is being sponsored by Celestia Denton, Barbara's mother. She faked her own death. But now she's all scarred and ugly, and she's willing to sacrifice her own daughter to be young and beautiful again. Boo! Luckily, Nighthawk and the Thing arrive just in time. Nighthawk beats up the cultists, and Thing punches out the Nameless One just as it begins to form. At the last minute, Celestia tries to use the Harmonica of Fate to change the balance of the fight, but Ben Grimm grabs the instrument and crushes it in his hand. Crisis averted! We also get a shout out to Destiny here, as the Hulk probably wouldn't have been smart enough to figure out to do this. Whatever. The cultists are beaten, and Doctor Strange hypnotizes them and marches them off to... Where? Who knows? Maybe the police station? They don't say. But we continue on to Defenders 21 from March 1975. Enter the Headmen. Steve Gerber writer, Sal Buscema artist, Sal Trapani inker, John Costanza letterer, George Russo's colorist, Len Wein editor. So Ben Grimm flies off in his fantastic car as Valkyrie looks through a photo album of her life as Barbara Denton. She's basically in full existential crisis mode. The guys offer to help, but for now, all she wants is to be alone, and sometime soon, to meet Barbara's husband, Jack. This sets Nighthawk off in a fit of jealousy. Valkyrie is confused by this, because, you know, you gotta make a move, Nighthawk. You can't complain about the friend zone if you don't try to leave it. Meanwhile, in nearby Westbury, Connecticut, it's a peaceful suburban scene. Husbands are heading out to golf games, wives are making lunches, and the Hulk is watching little kids play jump rope. Wait, what? The father of one of the kids runs out to protect them, and this freaks out the Hulk, who punches the ground so hard it destroys their house. Then one of the kids he was watching starts yelling at the Hulk, punching him on the knee. You broke my house. You hurt my daddy. I hate you. I hate you. This makes the Hulk cry, and it's really heartbreaking, you guys. I'm like really sad about it. It's just like, it tugs the heartstrings. Anyway, the Hulk jumps away, but let's stay here in Westbury for a moment 
because the narration is talking about a Dr. Arthur Nagin, who is up to something probably no good. We follow Nagin into his house, noticing his stooped posture. He's got a big lab in there, and as he takes off his gloves to reveal hairy black hands, he talks to his lab partner, Jerry, who is a dude with a gross, melty face. <laughs> What's up with these guys? Back in Cobbler's Roost, Val tries to find Jack, Barbara's husband, but instead she gets yelled at by Jack's landlady, who calls her a gold digger who probably wants to divorce Jack to get a chunk of his money Jack's father's left him. Val freaks out and runs away, and Doctor Strange quickly teleports them back to New York. Hey, speaking of running away to New York, Nighthawk is just touching down at the Park Avenue penthouse he owns as billionaire playboy Kyle Richmond. He moons over Valkyrie for three whole panels. When a new lady, Trish Starr, arrives, they've dated in the past and she has a key to his place, I guess? She's caught him in his super suit and he gives her the lowdown. She seems okay with it for the most part. I mean, her uncle is the supervillain Egghead, currently menacing newspaper Spider-Man. So she seems okay with this superhero concept. And she puts the moves on him as we shift focus to Bruce Banner in his Hulk pants and exhausted as he stumbles to the Sanctum Sanctorum. Clea looks kind of pissed as now two couches are being taken up in the Sanctum, one by the sobbing Valkyrie, one by a passed out Bruce Banner. Also, it's kind of funny how in Doctor Strange comics, the Sanctum is this giant TARDIS-like structure full of huge, sweeping architecture, but in the Defenders, it's just kind of a regular pad, I guess. Maybe they're different floors? Meanwhile, that Arthur Nagin and his buddy Jerry Morgan are meeting with a third guy, John Do the Mystic, who is basically an Indian Fakir stereotype. And uh, Chandu actually appears as a floating head in a jar in the current run of Doctor Strange comics. Now we get the backstory on these guys. They're, they're scientists. Jerry Hogan was interested in shrinking stuff. His experiments predate those of Henry Pym, a.k.a. Ant-Man, but they ended with his bones shrinking inside of his body and now he's full of loose skin and looks all melty and stuff. Nagin was big on transplanting organs but eventually the apes he was working on gained sentience and rebelled and grafted his body onto a gorilla body. So now it's like a regular dude in the head and a big gorilla body elsewhere. All these guys uh, appeared in Marvel Monster Comics in between the Golden Age with Namor and the original Human Torch in the 40s and the arrival of the Fantastic Four in 1961. It's cool to see Gerber reaching back into Marvel history for these bad guys, but now back to their plan. The plan is to implant some crazy stuff directly into Chandu's brain to give him super psychic powers. It works! Uh, and it drives hundreds, maybe thousands of people around New York City completely insane. Trish Starr tries to jump off the penthouse balcony, but Nighthawk grabs her and totally slaps her unconscious. Panic reigns around New York, including the Hulk. Oh, jeez. Meanwhile, Negan runs through the streets robbing jewelry stores and stuff. I mean, so not classy. Nighthawk sees this and tries to stop him, but Negan beats up Nighthawk and escapes because gorillas are super strong and Nighthawk is super lame. <laughs> Negan returns to the car and the bad guys, aka the headmen, because they all have weird stuff with their heads, escape. We'll get to them soon enough, I assure you. As they leave, the insanity caused by Chandu dissipates, and the Defenders are left worrying about the identity of this powerful new evil team. But don't worry about that for now. Next time on The Defenders, the Sons of the Serpent. And that'll do it for our normal-sized Defender stories this week. Just sort of an FYI, just so you know, because the Defenders come out monthly at this point, plus there's giant-sized issues, and Doctor Strange comes out every two months, there's way more Defenders at the moment than there is Doctor Strange solo stuff. I happen to think the Defenders is pretty fun, and it's great examples of what comics are like in the 1970s, so we're going to keep doing it. Anyway, after the break, we'll have some awesome solo Strange action, 
sandwiched between a giant-sized defender's issues. It's Dormammu on Rye, next on Stranger by the Dozen. We're back. Once again, I'm Conrad, and this is Stranger by the Dozen. Just a reminder, you can find the show on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and on any fine podcast app. Give the show a five-star review, and I'll read it on the air. Let's start with Giant Sized Defenders, number three, from January 1975. Another giant-sized issue. Just a reminder, these ones contained reprinted stories as well as new ones. For instance, this issue contains a Namor story from 1955 that features a group of bad guys made up of every racial caricature you can imagine, and a reprint of the Strange Tales story where Doctor Strange fought the house from space, as heard in our first episode. Good stuff! But on to the new stuff. Games, Godlings, Play. Steve Gerber, Jim Starlin, and Len Wein plotted this tale together. Then Jim did the layouts, Steve wrote the script, and Dan Adkins, Don Newton, and Jim Mooney finished the art. Char- Charlotte Jetter lettered it, Glennis Wine colored it, Roy Thomas edited it, and aren't these credits ridiculously complicated? <laughs> too much, guys. Too much. We start with Nighthawk. Approaching blind, red-costumed, radar-using superhero Daredevil for help. Daredevil thinks Nighthawk is still a bad guy, and they fight briefly, but eventually Nighthawk convinces Daredevil to come with him to help fight the evil game player, the Grand Master. Daredevil agrees, and the two of them are suddenly transported to a giant chessboard floating in space. Also there are the rest of the Defenders. Uh, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Hulk, and Namor. What's up, Namor? Grandmaster's also there. And Grandmaster's kind of weird-looking. He's got blue skin and big, white, sweeping, widow's peak haircut with dark red eyes. Okay, so before we go on, uh, there is some BS in this comic. There are a couple pages in this one where there's just one still image and then half the page is filled with straight-up text, like a regular book or something. And listen, if I wanted to read whole paragraphs, I wouldn't be reading a comic book, alright? The first one of these pages is a detailed description of how Daredevil uses his enhanced senses to perceive the various members of the Defenders, and the other is the Grand Master explaining the rules of the game. Basically, The six members of the Defenders plus Daredevil will fight a team chosen by the Prime Mover. So some quick background on both these guys. Uh, The Grandmaster is this all-powerful god-being that mostly just travels the cosmos playing games and stuff. He'll be a really big deal in the 80s when we get to the Contest of Champions. For now, we mostly know him for creating Nighthawk and the rest of the Squadron Sinister in a situation pretty similar to this one back in the day, though that time it was against Kang the Conqueror and the Avengers. The Grandmaster is once again playing for the future of Earth, so he called Nighthawk and had Nighthawk recommend a team, so he suggested the Defenders. We've also seen the antagonist for this fight, the Prime Mover, before as well. You'll remember that Nick Fury story where we met the Yellow Claw, and it all turned out to be an elaborate chess game between Doctor Doom and a crazy robot? Well, the Prime Mover was that robot. Anyhow, it's time for the contest. Both the Master and the Mover have a team of six warriors. The Warriors will face off in a series of two-on-two fights to the death. Best two out of three for control of planet Earth. The Grandmaster assures the Defenders that he doesn't really care what happens to the planet Earth, so it won't be a big deal if he wins. And the fight is on! 
first up, it's Valkyrie riding the Pegasus Aragorn and Nighthawk versus some kind of bat dude and Takor, a four-armed warrior dude on a Pegasus with bat wings. So Nighthawk beats the bat dude with some fearless flying fairly easily. Meanwhile, Val realizes that the warrior dude is actually a puppet being psychically controlled by the pat the bat Pegasus. Valkyrie throws her sword and totally kills the Pegasus. Victory defenders! <laughs> Next up, it's Namor and Daredevil versus a big lizard guy and some kind of blob. The blob makes quick work of Daredevil, unfortunately, holding him over an exploding vent as the vent explodes, killing the guest star. Then the lizard guy completely outmatches Namor who currently needs his, fa his fancy new costume to exist outside of water, and it's quickly destroyed by the lizard dude, who then proceeds to beat Namor to death with his terrible lizard dude tail. It's a super bummer, and we're tied one to one. Round three, Doctor Strange and the Hulk versus this tiny yellow guy named Grot with super powerful psychic antenna that could both protect him from the Hulk and beat up the Hulk. And Korvac, a cyber dude born in the year 2977. His lower half has been replaced by a floating tank turret. Oh man! Uh, so in the end, Doctor Strange triumphs by punching Korvac's uh, lights out, or at least his human half out, which takes care of the tank half as well. And the Hulk just manages to outlast the charge of Grot's antenna. Then he flicks him away to his doom. Victory defenders! But geez, now that he's won and returned Namor and Daredevil to life using his Grandmaster powers, it turns out that the Grandmaster feels like, you know, he just might want to rule the Earth after all and have the defenders be his gladiators forever. The defenders are not pleased by this and attack him, but are easily dispatched. The last man standing is Daredevil, who offers the Grandmaster another game. He'll flip a coin, or actually one of the discs that fly around the Prime Mover all the time, marked with an X as heads, and the winner gets the Earth. The Grandmaster agrees for some reason and calls Tails, and the coin is flipped, and it comes up. Well, the comic says heads, but it's clearly the unmarked face that comes up, which should be tails. It's a screw job! Baga! Uh, they'll apologize for this in later issues, incidentally. <laughs> Anyhow, the team is teleported back home, and Daredevil pieces out. Good team up, buddy. And so we go to Doctor Strange, Volume 2, Number 6. February 1975, Lift High, The Veil of Fears. Steve Englehart, author, Gene Colan, artist, Klaus Jansen, inker, Tom Orzikowski, letterer, Petra Goldberg, colorist, Len Wein, editor. There be new stars in the heaven this night, or perchance the old ones rekindled. Classic artist Gene Colan returns to the comic, all right. Oh, this isn't the best light to see him in, as I'm not actually a fan of Klaus Johnson's inks here. They make things look very dark and sketch-like, if that makes sense. Anyway, Doctor Strange and Clea walk through Central Park magically disguised to be wearing the latest fashions from GQ magazine, which is such a weird thing to, that they mention in the comic, but they totally do, to visit the giant rabbit from the Silver Dagger saga, currently in a cage at the zoo. Clea's training is coming along, and she casts a spell to shrink the bunny. Whispered of In Time's Lost Lore are seven rings of Ragador. Now I call, nay I implore, let all be as it was before. And it works! A tiny bunny! Successful, the two walk home, and on the way, they bump into a junkie who apparently has an ulterior motive or is scouting them out or something because he's got a very sneaky expression. And this leads to an old lady bumping into Doctor Strange in the street again and this old lady has a familiar aura. It's the unspeakable Umar. 
she threatens him with her demonic hordes. And Doctor Strange actually manages to dispatch her pretty easily, which apparently is all part of the plan. With Umar defeated, Stephen and Clea return to the Sanctum and plan their next move. We'll recall that Dormammu was last seen being destroyed by the evil eye at the end of the Avengers Defenders War. Strange theorizes that Umar's return means that Dormammu is on his way back too. Strange tries to peek into the Dark Dimension to see what's going on, but Umar blocks him out, and that settles it. Doctor Strange goes to travel to the Dark Dimension to settle the score, but Claire refuses to come along, and Strange leaves on his own. Strange begins his journey to the Dark Dimension, and he feels the Ankh appear on his forehead. There is danger! Meanwhile, Clea is wandering into a forest or something? There's mysterious stuff happening. As in this strange forest, a mysterious figure appears, and it's actual, literal Mother Nature. She's calling to Clea for help, sort of stressing that as a woman, she has to help out. Mama Earth isn't being exactly clear, but Clea seems to understand what she wants. Back in the Sanctum Sanctorum, she astral projects, uh, telling Wong to not tell Doctor Strange about it, and her spirit flies down deep into the center of the Earth, which is full of demons that capture her. But how can this be? Who's controlling these monsters? You ask what grows here in this swirling, seething hell? It cannot be. But it is, Clea. It is I, Dormammu. Doctor Strange 7, April 1975. The Demon Fever. Steve Englehart author, Gene Colan artist, John Romita inker, Tom Orzakowski letterer, Phil Rachelson coloring, Lenwine editor. So Clay's astral form is trapped in the center of the earth by the evil demons of Dormammu, who apparently lives there now, with Mother Nature, the Earth Goddess, his captive, its heady stuff. Dormammu gives us the lowdown. Following his destruction during the Avenger Defender War, he was reincarnated back in the Dark Dimension. Apparently, so long as people worship Dormammu, he can't fully die. But he is weakened. So he's at Umar hold down the fort in the Dark Dimension while he recovers his fiery energy in the lava pits in the center of the Earth while stealing energy from Mother Earth herself without consent. Boo! Just a note that since he's been reborn, Dormammu considers all previous vows and promises void. So this invasion of Earth is a-okay honor-wise. Mother Earth creates a diversion and Clea is free, but what can she do? Steven is in the Dark Dimension, where Clea refuses to go for her own reasons. Speaking of which, Doctor Strange has just arrived in the Dark Dimension as Umar looks on in her crystal ball, alongside that guy I told you to remember from last episode, <laughs> the one with the purple armor and the big triangle helmet, whose name we now learn is Orini. Also, in the ensuing time between the original entry of Doctor Strange to the Dark Dimension back in the 60s and now, or he has gotten rid of his shirt and showing off his awesome abs and pecs and stuff. <laughs> it turns out that this was all part of the plan to get Doctor Strange to the Dark Dimension so that he wouldn't notice that Dormammu is on Earth and gaining power. They have a trap in mind for Strange here in the Dimension, which they now spring Umar attacks Doctor Strange, and they have a big wizard fight, including the use of Umar's undead army of minions. Doctor Strange holds his own until his psychic attacks are reflected by Orini, and Strange is knocked out. His unconscious body is carried to the big scanner monster I also mentioned last episode, which we now know is called the Guranthic Guardian. It's a G and an apostrophe in there which will blast Doctor Strange with its big crazy monster eye, stealing his knowledge and will, turning him into a another mindless subject of Umar. Dang. But hey, let's jump back to New York City, where Clea rejoins her body and starts looking for ways to fight Dormammu while Steven is away. 
She tries a couple of the mystics we saw back in the Eternity arc, including Rama Khalif and aged Genghis, but neither is particularly helpful. Meanwhile, the junkie from last issue has revealed himself to be a big wheel in the earthly cult of Dormammu. We last saw him back in Marvel Feature 2 when the Dormammu cultists tried to summon Dormammu on Bald Mountain in Rutland, Vermont. Back then, I sort of assumed that all the cultists had been killed in the mountain slide that resulted in the big fight with the defenders, but I guess not. Since then, this cultist has been hiding as a heroin addict and seems to have really committed to the part. But now, he's leading a band of Dormammu cultists against the Sanctum Sanctorum. But this attack is quickly rebuffed by Clea, who is currently no slouch in the magic department. Back in the Dark Dimension, Doctor Strange is being zapped by the Garanthic Guardian, and he's only saved from complete destruction by his amulet of Agamotto. He survived, but lost any magical ability, which is bad, because now Orini has arrived with Umar's undead horde. Things look rough, and after some banter about how D Dormammu is actually a pretty decent ruler in the Dark Dimension, if you kind of look past the, pe the fact that everyone is now slaves to an eternal demon, but you know, he makes the trains run on time, so what's the problem? Uh, <laughs> Clea shows up. Doctor Strange thinks he's saved, but there is a wrinkle. Clea is Orini's daughter. Dun, dun, dun. That's why she didn't want to go back, and why now they're both about to be ripped to shreds by Orini's hordes. Doctor Strange 8, June 1975. Before I start this issue, I should mention that between issues 7 and 8, Dormammu and Umar guest star in Giant Size Avengers number 4. And this was at the height of the insanely complicated Celestial Madonna arc over there, which I'm not being paid enough or at all to try to recap for you. <laughs> for our purposes, though, um, the Scarlet Witch found out about Dormammu in the center of the Earth and investigated, was captured, and then freed by the Vision. Uh, just FYI, in case you were wondering if there were any hard feelings between Dormammu and Scarlet Witch, there totally are. Giant Size Avengers is also where Scarlet Witch and Vision get married by time-traveling hero Lord Immortus as part of a double wedding along with Mantis and a green energy projection claiming to be the Swordsman. I cover a superhero that travels through time and fights demons with magical incantations, and this stuff is way too crazy and complicated for me. Uh, keep this relationship between Mutant and Robot Man in mind, however, as it will come up later. Anyway, back to the show. Rites of Passage, Steve Englehart Writer, Gene Colan Pencils, Tom Palmer Inks, John Costanza Letterer, Tom Palmer Colorist, Len Wine Editor. So Stephen and Clay are against her father Orini and his hordes of demons and stuff. Doctor Strange has lost his magical powers, but Clea has hers, and she's able to use the Cloak of Levitation to help them both escape. <laughs> they fly to an old hiding place from Clea's youth, and she reflects on her seemingly motherless upbringing as Arena's daughter, while Strange meditates on what to do next. As Dormammu sends Umar to kill that junkie we've seen a couple times, and I'm not really feeling that subplot, I gotta say. Clea confronts Orini to get Strange's powers back, and he's not feeling their relationship. That Earth boy is no good! Somehow, Steven has figured out a plan. They'll use primal pagan magic to, with help from Mother Earth to get his powers back. Let's do it! <laughs> um, before we start this, there's actually a pretty funny part where Mother Earth asks Umar to free her and calls upon her as a woman to help her. And Umar seems pretty skeptical, and even Dormammu is like, Umar, a woman? <laughs> Which is weird, I don't know. Anyhow, Clea breaks into her old house and steals two green ribbons and a bottle of water. Doctor Strange and Clea wear the ribbons, uh... He ties his around his forehead, and she ties hers in her hair, and they create a magical circle with the water spilled in the middle. While meditating, Strange drops his amulet into the water, 
and the circle rises up out of the ground, surrounding Strange. He then flies to the outer reaches of the dark dimension, where the evil mindless ones dwell. Meanwhile, Clea creates a diversion and leads Orini and the forces of Dormammu towards the Garanthic Guardian, which starts blasting Clea. This is part of the plan, though, as Doctor Strange triggers the eye beams of the mindless ones. It directs all of his power stored in the Guardian back to Clea, who becomes super powerful for a moment. She zaps away Orini and the other de demons, and is about to burn out from holding all of the magic of, of the Sorcerer Supreme, until Strange manages to recover it from her, which he manages to do. So, for the record, the ribbons were t there to represent nature, and they employ, quote, voodoo-like use of the mindless ones as totems for the guardian, unquote. I, I don't know, man. It worked, and that's what's important, I guess. Strange is back in the saddle, and Clea is done with the dark dimension. Time for the showdown with Dormammu, who, oh, jeez, he's recovered all of his power, and now he's gigantic and climbing through a giant crack in the earth in Arizona. This will make things more difficult. And so we go to Doctor Strange number 9 from August 1975. Consummation. Steve Englehart author, Gene Colan artist, Frank Chiramonte inks, Karen Mantlow letterer, Janice Cohen colorist, Len Wine editor. From the molten heart of Earth itself there strikes the dread Dormammu. And this time not even Doctor Strange can stop him. So Dormammu climbs onto the surface of Earth from the middle of the Grand Canyon. He's over 8,000 feet tall and towering over everything as Umar flies around his head like a fairy in a Legend of Zelda game. Meanwhile, Stephen and Clea are arriving at the Sanctum Sanctorum to find that Rama Khalif has assembled a council of wizards and they've all arrived at the Sanctum to help out. <laughs> Strange dismisses them out of hand though, kind of like a jerk but does end up at least allowing Clea to accompany him in the fight against Dormammu. We'll come back to these guys later, and this is more sort of setting up the next storyline than anything else. I guess I should also mention that throughout this issue, we see the junkie henchman slowly die of an overdose that Umar forced him to take. I'm waiting for a reason why this is an important thing to be included, um, to, to, to be included besides showing just the evil of Dormammu and Umar, like how they killed their own guys, but I'm not really seeing it, I guess. Also, Mother Nature is freaking out about Dormammu finally being free and weather is going crazy all over the world. Meanwhile, in Arizona, Dormammu's pretty stoked about being big and powerful. But Umar springs her trap. Apparently, she's been waiting for Dormammu to get all-powerful. And now she's going to steal that power at the last minute in a classic Umar play we'll see again and again. Dormammu shrinks to nothingness, and now Umar gets big. And the cover was right. Umar stopped Dormammu, not Doctor Strange. Once she gains this power, Orini shows up, telling her that Doctor Strange has regained his powers and escape, and they reminisce about their first meeting. And from there, we learn the terrible truth. Umar is Clea's mother. Oh, damn. Umar brainwashes that knowledge out of Arini as Strange and Clea show up. And it's showdown time. So Stephen and Clea now have this mind link, which allows him to transfer some or even all of his power to her temporarily. He's done this now as he flies around Umar with the cloak of levitation and a fully powered Clea flies to the center of the earth to free mother nature with a badass spell imprisoned in amorpha sleeps the dim and monstrous zom he never shall escape again his barricades are strong but not all prisons are so cold for them there is a key a goddess in her paradise great oster must pluck free and mother nature is free she leaves to do powerful stuff elsewhere. The combined might of Clea and Doctor Strange now depowers Umar and brings back Dormammu. They hope that by doing so they could convince him to leave, like, hey, we gave you your powers back, so how about don't conquer the Earth? But no dice. <laughs> He's way too powerful for them to fight. Or is he? Suddenly, a freed Mother Nature arrives. She names Stephen and Clea her champions, 
and allows them to strike with all the power of Earth. We get a nice overview of different parts of Mother Nature's domain here, including the rabbit from the start of the story and a hand holding a page of this very comic. Very meta. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that, you know, Grant Morrison or Alan Moore would do 10 years later and blow everybody's mind. I'm just saying. <laughs> Dormammu is vanquished. Back to the Dark Dimension? Dead, maybe? It's not clear. Orini shows up again, but just to carry the unconscious body of Umar back to the Dark Dimension. Goodbye, my daughter. May we never meet again. And that's all for Solo Doctor Strange. Dormammu is defeated, and it's on to the next one. Next time, alone against eternity. All right, last one. Giant Size Defenders, number four, from April 1975. This issue rep reprints a Namor story from 1941. Namor remains extremely odd-looking in these old comics. It also reprints a, uh, a story from Strange Tales 121, where Mordo steals Doctor Strange's body while Doctor Strange is astral projecting and then hides it in a wax museum. You can check it out on the first episode of the podcast. So, too cold a night for dying. Steve Gerber, writer. Don Heck, artist. Vince Coletta, inker. David Hunt, letterer. Petra Goldberg, colorist. Len Wine, editor. It's January 4th, 1975, and Kyle Richmond is out on the town with Trish Starr talking to a bunch of gossip reporters, presumably the 1970s version of TMZ. I mention a lot how Nighthawk is supposed to be like Batman, so having him do some Bruce Wayne-type stuff is okay with me, though in general I'm anti-Nighthawk. <laughs> Anyhow, so far so good until Kyle and Trish get in their car, and when Kyle turns the key, it explodes! But it seems like a pretty minor explosion because instead of, like, dying instantly, the two are instead just injured and rushed to the hospital. Doctor Strange and Valkyrie visit them soon afterwards, incognito, of course. Nighthawk's surgeon recognizes Doctor Strange from his medical days and asks Strange to help with the surgery, as an assistant, of course. Strange agrees and it's time for tense surgery action. In the middle of it, Strange gets overwhelmed by stress and accidentally puts out a call to the Defenders. So that post-surgery Strange and Valkyrie have to talk down a concerned Hulk who's burst through the hospital wall looking to see if Bird Nose is okay. They calm him down and the three leap away from the hospital as Doctor Strange has an idea. Smash cut to the suburban home of Henry Pym and Janet Van Dyne a.k.a. Ant-Man and the Wasp. They learn about Kyle and Trish getting blown up, and Hank bursts into action. Trish took a bullet for Hank back in 1972 when he fought her uncle, the evil Egghead. Hank assumes that Egghead is up to his old tricks and decides to settle his hash. He tells Jan not to come with him because this time it's personal, and to prove it, he pulls his yellow jacket costume out of the closet. Okay, look. The thing to know about Hank Pym is that he's got superhero ADD, which leads to him having at least four primary superhero identities. There's Ant-Man, Giant-Man, Goliath, and Yellow Jacket. Yellow Jacket's probably most famous as the identity he took when he pretended to be a supervillain to blackmail Janet into marrying him under false pretenses. Anyhow, in his Yellow Jacket costume, Hank Pym heads off into the night to find Egghead. And speaking of Egghead, we see him now in the Bowery District of New York City, humanity's bottom line, where he rents a bed in a flop house for 50 cents. But the guys at this flop house are jokers, like the ones in the flop house podcast, I guess, and start making jokes at Egghead's expense. This starts a brawl, and eventually Egghead is tossed out into the street, swearing revenge. It's kind of pathetic, actually. Though it also reminds me of a similar scene in one of my favorite books, Soon I'll Be Invincible by Austin Grossman. Uh, so Yellow Jacket visits Trish, and we learn that she'll likely lose her arm, which is a bummer. He heads out to find Egghead. Meanwhile, Strange and Val meet with a now-conscious Nighthawk, and they theorize that it must have been the Squadron Sinister, who are dead, right? Anyhow, the team plans to visit their evil HQ just in case. 
Uh, there's a funny part here where the Hulk, dressed incognito in a trench coat and fedora, along with his purple pants, gets yelled at by a police officer for parking Aragorn the Pegasus in a no-parking spot. Hulk does not take this well. But it is nice to see that he and the horse are getting along really well. Eventually, the three defenders ride off into the night. There's also some momentary concern that the car Kyle and Trish were in had its gas siphoned, which lessened the size of the explosion of the car bomb. And why would the Squadron Sinister do that? But as Hulk says, Who cares about dumb gas? Magician and girl have talked enough. Hulk wants to fight Sinisters. Smash them! And they're off. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, elsewhere in Lower Manhattan, and the you know the crazy thing I always forget about New York is that all these places are really close together. So like they talk about Greenwich Village or the Bowery, and it seems like they're worlds apart, but it's really like a mile at most. Anyway, Yellow Jacket has found Egghead. He barely even intimidates the supervillain before Egghead spills the beans. Egghead set the car bomb but he drained the fuel because he only wanted to maim Trish to end her modeling career. And holy crap, that is terrible. Just ridiculous. Yellow Jacket agrees and kicks the crap out of him, then calls the cops to arrest Egghead. Back at the hospital, Trish has lost her left arm. Pim checks in on, on Kyle Richmond, Nighthawk, and lets him know the scoop. But Richmond immediately freaks out. He tells Yellow Jacket that he's Nighthawk, which... Good secret identity work there, Richmond. Ugh. And that the defenders are on their way to the Squadron Sinister under false pretenses. If the Squadron Sinister's even alive, Yellow Jacket agrees to help out. Cut to the Squadron Sinister. They've just gotten back from some, like, place? They say, I still can't figure out why Nebulon would want to stay in Zar and live among the Lubderdites. In a footnote, Steve Gerber promises to tell us more in the future, and he will soon enough. And that's when the Defenders starts getting really weird. There's going to be a murder fawn and everything. For now, though, the Squadron has returned to Earth within the last, like, hour or so, and they're making plans which seem to involve this big crazy future gun they've acquired wherever they were. They think they have the element of surprise when the Hulk comes crashing through the wall. Uh, the fight seems easy at first. Hulk backhands Hyperion unconscious. Doctor Strange traps the wizard in the vapors of Valtor. But then Doctor Spectrum gets the future gun online and he zaps the Hulk back to Bruce Banner. Then he green lanterns a huge table fan and blows away the vapors. The squadron quickly knocks out Doctor Strange and Valkyrie and things look bad for the team. Valkyrie wakes up with her hands and feet bound in an adamantium brick. Doctor Strange is chained up and gagged so he can't cast spells, and Bruce Banner is shackled to the wall, unable to hulk out. Things look grim until Doctor Strange is able to astral project and find the nearby Yellow Jacket who's looking for them. YJ comes to the rescue, blasting Banner so that he turns back into the Hulk and helping Val and Strange get free. Now it's once again showdown time. And not a moment too soon, as the squadron are attacking Nighthawk at the hospital. They rip him out of his room, only to be saved at the last minute by Valkyrie. Meanwhile, Dr. Spectrum takes Dr. Strange out of the fight by putting him in a big energy cube with almost no air, both suffocating Strange and preventing him from saying his magic spells. This guy knows a lot about magic somehow. Yellow Jacket then takes out the wizard by using his shrinking ability and flying into the wizard's inner ear, making him lose balance. And the Hulk also focuses on eardrums. When it's clear he can't punch out Hyperium, he does a super hand clap, which is my favorite move, which deafens Hyperion and shatters Dr. Spectrum's power crystal, freeing Dr. Strange. The bad guys are beaten. Note that Valkyrie didn't take part in this fight because she was too busy taking care of Nighthawk. No, Val! Don't fall for that Joker! Epilogue. It's a tearful farewell for Kyle and Trish as she's going off on her own to figure out where she fits in a world with a missing arm. Another kind of downer ending for the Defenders. Hopefully, things pick up soon. And that's it for this week. A lot of interesting stuff this time. It's 
cool to see more backstory on Barbara and especially Clea. Like, what a bombshell that she's Umar's daughter. <laughs> Something interesting from the letters column from the issues this week is that Steve Gerber's stated plan for the Defenders is to only include characters that weren't appearing regularly in other comics and to focus on developing the characters of Valkyrie and Nighthawk instead of Doctor Strange and the Hulk, who already have their own books already. I give Nighthawk a hard time, but he's basically okay, just for the record. Inoffensive is how I describe him. If you'd like to contact the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com or interact with the show on Facebook and Instagram at strangerbythedozen on Twitter at StrangerByThe12, that's StrangerByThe12, and on Tumblr at StrangerByTheDozen.tumblr.com. During the week, I'll post a bunch of images and quotes from the issues covered this week, so keep an eye out. Stranger by the Dozen is on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and any other podcatching app. And remember, if you leave a five-star review on any platform, I will read it on the show. Next week on the podcast... The Defenders take on the Sons of the Serpent, as well as racism and poverty. Then, they'll travel through space and time to team up with the original Guardians of the Galaxy. Finally, in Solo Strange, the Reverb Effect will be working overtime as Eternity Returns. Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, returns to the show to team up against the most unfortunately dressed demon worshiper ever next week on Stranger by the Dozen. Until then, faithful listener, I say, thou didst violate me, Dormammu, brutally, but in doing, thou didst make thyself known to me. I am but a shepherdess, yet I can guide this man and this woman to that knowledge of thee. Their bond groweth, shifting from mind to will, and I can guide all my other children to a knowledge of their bond. Then shall all of nature be in harmony with them, yea, from the weakest to the strongest, from the free to the caged, from the cowardly to the confident, from those who remain unaware to those who feel it all. The power of this planet shall strike for Doctor Strange. Until next week, my name is Conrad, and this is Stranger by the Dozen. May the Vishanti guide your path.